in three, two, one. Whether you're presenting training programs, team meetings, or a sales pitch, you can present like a pro, deal with technological glitches, appear calm under pressure, and deliver value-packed virtual presentations. If you want to learn how to make your online meetings as engaging as in person, you're going to learn some helpful strategies and tactics in my conversation with Diane Windingland. Well, hi, Diane. Welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. I'm excited to be here, Michael. Now, we're talking to you, you're in Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul? Yes, the land of 10,000 lakes. And depending on the time of year, you could make that 10,000 frozen lakes. Oh, it's a beautiful spot, though. Do you get out for the wintertime or are you pretty much staying there? We always plan a trip to somewhere warm over the winter, yes. Oh, well, good for you. Hey, well, let's dive into it. You've been a virtual speech coach and elevating experts and professionals or presentation skills for years. I was really interested in your background and how you evolved into this role, because over a dozen years ago, you were an engineer. How does an engineer all of a sudden realize, hey, there's a challenge here, there's a problem here, and then take the course of action that you did to put yourself in the position you are today? Well, I was an engineer in my early 20s, and I did not have great communication skills. I would talk to my boss, and I was thinking I'd be laying out all the evidence for something, and he'd be rolling his eyes and saying, would you just get to the point? Well, I was only an engineer for a short time, and then I quit totally, became a stay-at-home mom, homeschooled my kids, and finally, when my oldest was 14, I thought he should get some practice in public speaking, so I brought him to a local Toastmasters club, and they said, well, he's too young to join, but if you join, we'll let him give a few speeches. So I joined Toastmasters. And then did very well in Toastmasters and had people start asking me for help with their speeches. And then I realized that, yeah, I could make a business out of this. So that's how I got started. Wow. So you went from engineer to being a stay-at-home mom and raising your children to actually getting into it. And you don't plan on getting into it either, do it? It kind of falls into your lap, but it's definitely a passion for you. And you're obviously excited and you've developed some really cool stuff about it. Now you, you write books and you speak and you speak all over the world and you train and coach all over the world. So let's talk about that because I'm really interested in the subject of virtual speech because obviously post pandemic and during the pandemic, a lot of us had to pivot to that. As a speaker, I remember when the pandemic hit in March every engagement we had just canceled and we had to try and pivot to these hybrid events and people aren't going back where we're saying that where people are enjoying the remote work and it's really changed the face of work. And so how did you start to recognize, cause we're going back over a dozen years now that, Hey, virtually there's an opportunity here. And how do we set ourselves apart in a virtual environment? I rather lucked into it as something I thought I'd like to do someday. When I started the business virtual speech coach, It was 2012, and I was doing nothing really virtual, but I thought I would like to do 
virtual business. And I started to do a little with like Google Hangouts, Skype, et cetera, and just was getting into using Zoom when the pandemic hit. And then it just blew up. I had so many more people who were interested in coaching via Zoom because all of a sudden people saw how viable it was to use virtual communication for coaching, for giving presentations and whatnot, that what I thought I might do someday was probably skyrocketed forward quickly with the pandemic. Yeah, we say that too. We used to tell our clients, hey, in 10 years, here's what the environment's going to probably look like. It's here today. It's accelerated. So this has been sped up and we're here. And so it's learning the tips and tricks. And when it first started, we couldn't get equipment. I remember everybody needs a microphone, a green screen, lighting and proper lighting. But there's some real nuances that are different from live presentations. So just because you might be good at doing a live presentation, virtually, there's other challenges that we have to look at. So what are those fundamental differences between virtual and live? Well, I would say probably the biggest one is not being in the room with the audience Mm -hmm. because you don't always get the same kind of reaction, especially people are muted. So if you say something funny and if they have their video off, you don't really even know how it's landed. Right. And so you don't have the same energy that you would get from a live audience. So that is an adjustment for people who are used to speaking to live audiences. And then there's several other things that we've all learned with setup, having lighting on your face rather than being this dark silhouette, having either a virtual background or something that's well-appointed. And for example, I have a green screen. So if I have my hand up, it doesn't have weird colorings and I don't get decapitated. So you have to kind of decide which direction you want to go with that. And then there's even things like how you do body language. Some people will step back and do full body or three-quarter body presentations, which can work. But I find most people like to see people, not their whole body, but from maybe waist up, especially. I typically like to sit in front of my computer, so I'm even closer. For some people who are very far back, it makes them look small, or if they're too far down, right? they look like they're in a weak position. So right. you do want to frame yourself. You want to consider the lighting, the background, what you're wearing. I saw one guy on a virtual presentation talk about virtual presentations and what to do and what not to do. And he was wearing a shirt with very small stripes that his camera caused sort of a psychedelic effect where they were waving around us. So I actually took a screenshot to share in my next presentation about what not to do in a virtual presentation. Don't wear small patterns that might look psychedelic, for example. And I think a lot of people have come a long way. There's even where you position your camera where you want it at about eye level. So it's not looking up your nose or looking way down on you. I think we've all come a long way, although some people still don't seem to care about how they appear, but most people have a much better idea. And so there's that piece. And then there's the interaction with the audience, Mm because I don't know if you do a lot of interaction, not quite the same. However, breakout rooms, I have come to love breakout rooms because you can make 
groups of three or four very easily. You send them to the breakout room. You set the time. You let them know ahead of time what they're supposed to be doing. And then when the time is over, you close the breakout room and they all come back. Unlike a live presentation where they don't want to stop talking. So it, it's trying to nice herd cats to back in the room again. Yeah. Right. Everybody's back in the room. So you don't have to allow a lot of extra time for people to finish their conversations because once the breakout room is up, they all get thrown back. And then there's other visual aspects like how you do PowerPoint. One of the nice things I think for subject matter experts who tend to want to have slightly more detailed PowerPoint is that it is a little easier to see PowerPoint on the screen, assuming you have a computer screen in front of you. Although I'm not a fan of putting a lot of information, it does enable people to see more because you don't have people way in the back of the room. Everybody has a front row seat when right. you're a speaker. There's no disadvantage to that. Plus, if you have people with hearing impairment, for example, you can enable the closed captioning or subtitles yeah which makes a huge difference for people who are hard of hearing to be able to understand. You get to use the chat, things that you can use that you really couldn't use so much in person. So I like virtual presentations and I like in-person presentations. They're just a little bit different. And I really liked about some of your material and watching some of your YouTubes and you've got tons of videos. People can go check you out as well on YouTube is to where you can have just as an effective virtual presentation and meeting as you could live, because that's always been a complaint with everyone. And then with the interactions, you talk about interactions and try and structure your interactions. You're having one every three minutes or so. And within your presentation, you touched on a few of them. So we could ask a question, we could do a poll, we could show something, we show some video. And I find the interactions, there's more options than there is in a live presentation. So presenting to a live right. audience, I might ask a question or get them to role play with me in a situation. But this way you can bring in the whole group to it and get all of their thinking for engagement. Do you have any other suggestions around that kind of engagement? Well, one of the easiest things to do is to use chat. I have tried some of the fancier solutions where you have people like play a game. They have to go to a website, put in a code or whatever. Right. And that can be fun, but it can also be frustrating when people can't make it happen. Right. So I personally, I'm a big fan of chat and breakout rooms as the two that I use the most because they're pretty easy. And with chat, if you're using it for interaction, you want to make sure that what you're asking them is something they can answer very simply, that they don't have to think too hard and then write a paragraph. Right. You want to be able to have them answer, like if you have a choice of four things, you know, choice one, choice two, choice three, choice four, you could say, if you didn't set up a poll in advance, you know, which is your favorite? And you can just see it come in. Or you might have something with a one to three word answer. And then if you say their name, Charlene, you said this. Can you tell me more about that? You can even get some engagement going that way too. So I think chat is a great way that's very low tech that most people are comfortable with. And I have found that if I do a few questions after each question, I will put in the chat something like a series of X's just so I know that's where the answers ended for a particular question. So I'm like, I don't know where oh, the that's next, a good tip. Next one. Yeah. Just so that I can delineate sure. between the questions. And then 
again, for breakout rooms. If you're going to send people to breakout rooms, it's important that they know why, what the purpose is, and what you expect for an outcome. So if you expect that they're all going to select one person to share what they've discussed, you need to tell that ahead of time. And you almost always need to debrief any activity. So if they do an activity, why was that important? What did they learn from it? And that's true also in in-person types of presentations as well. Sure. So I would say those are the ones that I use the most. Chat, breakout rooms using polls once in a while. I think people love breakout rooms. They love to be able to talk with other people. And that takes up a lot of time. So you have to consider how much time you have. That's a big aha for me. I've never done the breakout rooms. I've always been the one just presenting to the room and then the Q&A and the questions. And I know you have formats for that. The personalization, I think, is huge. Like you said, being able to use their name, ask them a specific question, let them know that you could come to them in a moment's notice. And I also think with the generations, we've got five generations at work today with the younger people, the Gen X, the Gen Ys, the millennials, they're used to short, sweet, give me the facts and they're visual. So they want to see it where as a baby boomer, I'll go and sit and watch a lecture for an hour. No problem. Where now it's their short hits or to the point. So I think there's lots of areas that you talk about particular that you can add some, some of that personalization and interaction. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. Active Campaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. Now, back to my conversation with Diane Windingland. Talk about props. I saw a post that you had on recently talking all about the use of props, and I've never considered that. And I thought, well, you have a- to consider your venue right. when you're using props. So, this venue that we are talking on right now is a Zoom window. So, I would be somewhat limited in the size of the prop unless I back <laughs> up to be able to use the prop. Right. And if you're in person, you have to think about how far away the audience is. And so, if you have a tiny prop and the audience is sitting far away, That does not work. But on Zoom, so I have this little tiny sound machine. I can show it to you, even though it's only about three and a half inches tall, because I can put it right up to the camera. So you have to consider your venue. You have to also consider, will your audience understand what you're doing with the prop? Because a prop can be used to make a visual impact. People will remember stories when you use a prop. And that makes it very memorable. I don't really have any props with me right now, but I did have a prop when I talked about integrity. It was a talk I did for high schoolers and I used a balloon to represent integrity. And I said, now I'm filling this up with my integrity and I blew up the balloon. And then I said, 
Let's say I believe in kindness, but I'm cruel. And then I let a little air out of the balloon, demonstrating I was losing some integrity. And I did that for a series of three questions and lost a little integrity each time. And then I said, pretty soon. And then I let the balloon go and it would like fly around the room. Doesn't work very good on Zoom. And just like land on the floor somewhere. I then said something like, who would want to or could even follow? a leader like that, someone who has no integrity. And so that made that particular story. Exactly. And using the problem, I think I saw that in a video you were doing a presentation, I believe in Copenhagen, seeing that particular example of that. So very good. And it's something that can be brought into it, the use of props. And so you're saying, take a look at the space, look at the space that you have or bring in your prop. And it can also be another video. And now we can play other videos. We can play sound bites. We can put memes in, you can bring lots of things to create people's interest. So you're really producing a show in essence, you're like entertainment. And I want to get to story in a minute. We'll get cover story because I, I know you talk all about the importance of story to make your point. And I believe in that. Let's talk about why it's so important for folks, business professionals, people in general, to learn how to level up their presentation skills, particularly online. In other words, if I don't do this and, hey, I don't like speaking on this or I'm zoomed out or whatever, what kind of impact does it have on our careers professionally? And because wherever it's moving to, I think it's just going to be getting better and better to one day we don't even really need to show up. But I mean, that'll still be the best kind of meeting, I think, if we meet in person. But How important is it for us personally and professionally to level up those skills? Well, whether it's virtual or in person, how you show up and how you communicate is the impression people have of you. And if you are someone who drops their head or is teeny tiny on the screen, has bad lighting, it's like, do I really want to listen to this person? Even if you're not terribly confident, it's about acting as if. And pretty soon, not only do people see you the way you're portraying, but you start to see you as being more confident, especially as people react positively to you. So you can create an upward moving spiral of increased professional presence by how you appear, by how you prepare, by how you present. And if you're working with upper level executives, particularly how well you are able to get to the point and speak with clarity and conciseness. Yeah, I think that'll make a difference. There's a lot of executives or C-level executives that do a terrible job or CEOs. And we watch some of the meetings and live, they're fine. You put them in front of a camera and they screw it up. You can see them. They're thinking about something else, maybe how I'm looking, how I'm reacting, how I'm coming across to the audience. So it is unsettling them in some way anyway. You also talk about starting presentations. A lot of people have a challenge of, hey, what am I going to talk about? I'm going to craft this presentation. And I know you have a multi-step process that you use to create, starting with a defining statement, which I thought was really, really interesting. And then the follow-up. Talk about how important it is to have a defining statement, what that is and what it looks like, and maybe give us an example of one. Well, I think you have to even back up further than that. And you have to look at, for whatever your topic is, why would your audience care? You have to actually do a little audience analysis. And you may have a mixed audience, but for the sake of this discussion, let's just say you're going to do a presentation to upper level executives at your company. Right. So you have to think, well, why would they care? Why do they need what I'm going to say? Typically, they need to make a decision. So how is what I'm going to say going to help them to make a decision and 
emotionally, why is that important to them? And there could be a lot of reasons depending on the company, depending on the person. And you may need to do a little investigating on your audience. So you need to think about your audience first. Why is it important to them? And then you want to think about, before you even have a defining statement, what it is that you want your audience to think, feel, or do as a result of what you're going to talk about. What what do I want them to think, feel, and do? And then if I could say it in one sentence, what would I say? So for example, the bumper sticker sticker statement. So I actually have physical bumper stickers that I've sometimes used with people. So if someone asks you, Michael, what do you do? Now, you probably have a prepared statement, but a lot of people flounder with that, or they try to do a 30 to 60 second elevator speech, which nobody really likes. So I suggest have one sentence that is easy for you to say, think about what it is you do, whom you do it for, and how do they benefit? So my statement would be, I coach and train subject matter experts to speak with clarity and confidence. That's just one sentence. Yeah, but it's a powerful sentence. You've had to fine tune that, hone it, chip away at it to get it down to its most simplest form. That takes work. Those just don't pop out of your head. And then you can expand on those statements through, if they ask you questions, you say, well, how do you do that? You would want to be prepared to explain how you do that. You'd probably want to be prepared maybe with a success story that you could tell because people remember success stories. And if you're meeting with someone one-on-one, you can even offer a quick practice with them. So one thing I will do with people who want to work on impromptu skills is I will let them practice a particular concept called prep, which is where when, say, an executive asks you a question, you start out right away with the point, then the reason provide an example, and sum it up with the point at the end. So I will give an example of me using PrEP, and I'll have a little thing that comes up on my virtual background that has what the acronym stands for, and then I will have them try a fairly easy question so that they can see how it works. So if you can do that, where you're trying maybe to convince people to buy your product or service and you can give them a quick little sample that can also help with people making a decision. Oh, that makes sense. For instance, how people ask me what we would do. And I always say, if you give the answer and then they ask for more information, you've got a good one. For my standards, I've got a couple, depending on the vertical I'm working. But I said, we help companies in the insurance industry become the preferred providers in the market they serve, or we help realtors in their markets become the emotional favorite. And then they go, well, how do you do that? Well, we focus on technology and we have the follow-up pitch, Mm -hmm. but it takes time to do it, but it's worth doing it. So then you create that purpose while you're here. And then where does your audience benefit statement come into it? Well, typically when I create a presentation, I will often start my presentations and end similarly. And I call it the three P's approach where I will open with some pep, include a promise and give them the path, the three P's, pep, promise, path, where pep is you start with something that will grab their attention. It could be a startling statement, a strange statistic. It could be a rhetorical question, something 
that will break their focus from whatever they were doing before right. and get their focus to what you're talking about. So you do something, it could be a story. Stories are one of my favorite ways to get people's attention because it really engages them emotionally and also gives them a picture. And then after you got their attention, you can give them some sort of promise. Today, you will discover how you can speak with greater clarity and confidence as you talk with upper-level executives. We'll do that in three areas, and then I'll give them the path and kind of preview the points. Here's the framework. Because people like to know where they're going. And so you preview the points, then you can simply go through the body of your speech. If it's a topical speech with three points, you go through your three points, and then you can close it by reversing the three Ps where you summarize your points, your path, then you revisit the promise and show them how they got what you promised. And you can close with some kind of anchor, which often is a call to action. That would be the typical way I might structure a presentation, keeping in mind the audience's why. No, and I think it's in your book Impromptu, you talk about stories engage the mind. How important is story then versus stats? Because a lot of people use stats in their presentation. Here's my facts and my figures. But if we interview people at the end of the day and go, what did you remember about this presentation? They really don't remember the stats. When you tell them a story, they do remember it. We work with some, you'll appreciate this, pharma companies and the pharma reps will go in and see a doctor and they get about a minute to two minutes of pitch time. And they'll tell a doctor, hey, doc, this drug, it does this, it works in this environment, here's what it's good for. And when we interview the doctor four hours later, they can't recall. They just don't recall Mm -hmm. the details. If we come in and we say, hey, doc, there's this new drug coming up by company ABC, and it is really good in this scenario. Matter of fact, they had a patient who, and tell the story, they remember the stories. And so I know you preach story and importance, but story means a lot of things to different people. So do you have a formula for the story and how you incorporate the story? Like I do, and mine is point, story, story. So in my formula, I got, here's my point. So see, the point is take a standard service offering and level it up. That would be the point. And I'll go, let me tell you a story. Where would that happen? It'll be personal. Then the second story for me would be application. Here's a client who did it. Here's what their results were, or here's how you could do it, make it work for you. That's a formula I use, and it seems to work well, but I'm curious, do you have a formula for a story? Well, you can often say your point and then tell a story once in a while. You can tell a story and then say your point. It just depends on what works for your particular presentation. Sure. But I think a lot of people think they're telling a story when they're not. They will <laughs> talk about an example and it doesn't have all the elements that make a story interesting. So a story needs a little bit of context. People have to be able to like get the initial picture in their mind, but you don't need to set up a lot for the context, you know, a time and a place. It could be when I was a child or at my grandmother's home at Christmas time, just a little bit of context. And then you also have to have typically a main character. Stories with a lot of characters can get very confusing. It's much easier to have a main character in your story. And for the story to be interesting, the main character should have some kind of goal, but there's an obstacle or maybe more than one obstacle in reaching the goal. And that's where the conflict piece, that's where it's really interesting. And then stuff has to happen. There have to be events. It has to lead to some kind of climax. 
and then a resolution. And I think if people even include little bits of dialogue, not completely acting it out, but just a little bit of dialogue in this person said something and was like with a reaction, even a facial reaction. Like you're telling a story, like you would tell anybody a story with your friends and you're telling a story that you've told, you want to tell the story the same way with the same animation. I do have, and I can't remember if it's in the book or not, I do have an alternate way of telling a story that works particularly well in sales. And it's one I heard from a world champion of public speaking in Toastmasters, Craig Valentine. So it is not unique to me. And it's called Then, Now, How? And probably the quickest representation of it would be if you've ever seen the before and after pictures for weight loss products. Right. You see the before, you see the after, and you wonder, how did they do that? And that's the concept. Rather than telling the story, chronologically, before, during, after, you could have the before state, the painful state. And then you could say something like, fast forward three months later, after working with us, and then talk about the positive and improved state. And then it's like, wow, that sounds great. People are leaning forward. And now they actually want to hear the how you did that. So that's an alternate way to tell a story if you're selling a product or service. And I think you outlined the basic hero's journey, like every television show, every movie, your favorite programs, um, they all follow the same formula. You know, there's the problem. So if you were taking, say, Hunger Games, Katniss is out doing her hunting bunny rabbits, and all of a sudden, Donald Sutherland decides to wreak havoc with the districts. Then comes the guide. And I think the role, and I know you talk about this, the speaker is the guide. You're not the hero. No, the audience the is the hero. The audience is the, the hero. Audience be the, or if you're telling a story like a client success story, you make the client the hero. Yeah, that's right. And you were the guide on the side. That's right. And if we take the guide role, and a lot of companies, a lot of people get in in their presentations, and it's all about us. So here's about our company, and here's why you should buy from us. Or it's talking about the company. Instead, I always look at it from an advisor perspective. You should change, and here's why you should change. And so state the problem, state the case. Here's how you do it and then bring in your proof sources as you're going along. So it's very formulaic, but I think it's a good formula that works. And then people love stories. You know, my grandkids, I know you're a grandmother as well. I can say, hey, go get your pajamas on and Papa's going to read you a story or tell you a story. And man, we get activity. People want to hear it. If you walk in and say, hey, I got to tell you guys something that just happened to me. People will listen. They stop. So our whole culture, civilization was built on stories. The way we talk, the way we communicate. I think stories become important. One of the other areas and common problems with people presenting, whether it's online or in person, and I know you face this and experience it yourself, is confidence. And they've heard the simple, well, you just get up and do it anyway, or fake it, fake it till you make it. And we've all done that. And confidence can be something, it's fleeting. Sometimes we've all had that nervous pit in our tummies. It's like, how do we come across in a calm way? How do we get our mental space in the right place prior to an engagement? Do you have any tips or possible solutions? Someone says, hey, this makes me nervous. You know, as far as building confidence or putting ourselves in a state to where we can speak confidently and whether it's breathing or whatever, do you have any tips around that? Sure. I have tons of tips on that. If I might even mention, I have a book, not the one you read, but it's a hundred tips and tricks to appear confident in presentations. Oh, excellent. That goes through all sorts of tips, including the first section is 
often just mental preparation. I still remember when I screwed up in a speech contest in Toastmasters and I had made two critical errors. One, I tried to memorize it word for word. And then when I got in a different situation, my mind just went blank and I had no other paths to go down. So I just stood there for like 10 seconds. And then, of course, I did not place. But I was thinking later, wow, what could I have done differently? And one was to not memorize what I was going to say, but to just have like practice from keywords so I could just have a more conversational flow. And the other thing was I realized what the root of most fear of public speaking is, and it's the fear of being judged. We are afraid people are going to judge us. He's an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, I stood there for like nine, 10 seconds, just waiting for something to come back to me. And part of my internal dialogue was, oh, I look like an idiot, you know, where it was even further preventing me from finding my words. And I realized that I was looking at that in a very selfish way, Mm. that it was very me focused. And so I then decided I'm going to look at my opportunities to present as giving a gift to the audience. Mm. And the gift could be a gift of entertainment. In a business sense, it is a gift that you are providing them information or inspiration to make a decision or to make a change. So reframing why you're there can kind of help. And also, you can reframe failure. Know that when you try things, sometimes, maybe often, you will fail in some aspect of it. And you just yeah, nothing's perfect. Yeah, reframe it as learning. But then a few very specific tips. I'm sure you have seen Amy Cuddy's TED Talk on power posing at one time or another. And if you have an opportunity before going into an important presentation, an important meeting, an important interview, or if you're in your own house, because it's going to be via Zoom or some other online format, try to find a place for a couple of minutes where you can use expansive body posture, which would be like a Superman, Wonder Woman pose, or even arms up and V for victory. And I don't just do that. I also have some positive affirmations that if I'm home alone, I'll say out loud if in my public restroom, I might just say in my head. And so I will say either in my head or out loud, I am smart. I am powerful. I am serious. I can yeah. make a difference. Yeah. And so there's that piece of just like psyching yourself up. And then there's the little pieces, because some people are all psyched up, they know their material, they get there, and then the fear just hits them. Oh, yeah. That happens to a lot of people. And (laughs) I don't have that happen to me very often anymore, but sometimes I do feel flustered because maybe things haven't quite gone the way I thought they should. Right. I have found breathing, like at the very least, take a breath. And if you can have time to do tactical or square breathing, which you've probably heard of, breathe in for a count, hold for a count, breathe out for a count, hold for a count. And I think focusing on breathing, it kind of gets your mind in a different space so that you can have control of your upper level of thinking and just accept whatever happens. And I'm going to just go on kind of thing. Right. Yeah. 
No, slow it down. And changing mindset's a big one and shifting it from, hey, it's about me and how I'm coming across and what this is going to mean to my career versus, hey, these people are hurting or people could use this information or help. I use six words in a mantra. So I love the I am statements as well. But before I go on, my mantra is heal the space, heal the room. And the space is around me, right? The space is where I happen to be at, where I'm present at, and the room's the room. So whoever's in the room, but without attachment that the room or space needs healing, meaning it might just be fine. But what it does is it shifts me into a servitude mode versus an arrogant one, or, hey, I'm the best thing since sliced bread, and I'm going to tell you how to do this or that. Because they set the intro up, and you listen to the intro, my mom wrote it, and it's, hey, <laughs> I want to listen to that guy, he sounds good. And yet it's our own material, propaganda, if you will. And so by heal the space, heal the room, it puts me into servitude mode, and now I'm coming from a giving point of view. And when you're giving, right. it changes your mindset. So well said, and I think that does work. Taking the super pose is always good too. Even like if you're in a virtual meeting sitting down, don't slump in your chair. That looks bad to begin with. And yeah. second of all, you don't have full access to your breath. You might feel too laid back. So I usually sit up tall and then lean just a little bit forward. Yep, exactly. You know, as you get older, you get like the little chin. Um, or little one, or so we grow a beard to kind of cover some right, of it. Right. Yeah, I get you on that. And just wrapping up, one of the other areas I wanted to touch on is in a live environment, I don't do this. So a lot of times I will go in and people say, well, can we do a Q&A? And if I'm doing a keynote presentation, I don't like to do Q&A because somebody's always going to raise their hand and ask a question. Everybody's waiting to go for a bio break or get a glass of water or make a phone call, and they got to listen to some question. Online, it's a little different. You can sit there and say, hey, those who need to go can go. If you want to say, I'm going to say, and that's for all the Q&As. You say, how to shine in a Q&A. Any tips on that for us that might be useful? I think it helps to know your stuff. Right. To know what's important to you. And by that, I mean to know what your values are. A lot of times you can answer a Q&A question that isn't simply factual, where you come from a place of your own values. Like if you sit down and think, okay, being honest is important to me. Being kind is important to me. So when I am answering a question, I don't want to encourage people to be dishonest or unkind. Right. And I want to answer in a way that is honest and kind. And then to actually think ahead of time, what might I possibly be asked? You're not going to think of everything, but you may think, okay, what are typical questions that someone might ask? And think about even maybe jot a few key words that you might use to answer them. Plus, if you have a little bit of an agenda and you want to get back to your agenda in terms of maybe you have a message you really want to have come across, you should be able to gracefully pivot from a question that maybe is kind of irrelevant to the question that you think either they really mean to ask Attended. or one that is more relevant to the rest of the audience. So having some talking points prepared in advance can be a good thing. And then there's just how you do the questioning. Instead of saying, does anybody have any questions? You're going to get crickets usually. Yeah. You can say, instead, ask assumptively, what questions do you have about, and then pick your topic or some aspect of your topic, give it like a full six seconds and just wait. Yeah, pause. And after six seconds, if nobody says anything, have what I call your question in the can. Have a question that you want to answer. 
and say, well, one question, right. just answer your own question. Right. One question many people have is, and then answer the question. Sometimes just need to get the ball rolling. And then when you end your question and answer session, don't end it on the last answer to the last question because you have no idea what that's going to be. You should have some sort of wrap-up statement so you don't just leave it on whatever that last question is. Does that make sense? It makes sense and good advice as well. Well, this has been absolutely terrific, Diane. Lots of nuggets and insights and your experience and wisdom. So we appreciate you sharing it with us. The website is virtualspeechcoach.com. We'll have all your links in the show notes. And I believe you are also offering up to a 30-minute consult for organizations. You'll see it right on my website. Well, perfect. So whether you're doing general information webinars, whether you're doing sales demos, whether you're doing training, whether you're doing team meetings, we can all improve our virtual presence and our virtual speech. And so the virtual speech coach, Diane, great job. Again, we'll have everything in the show notes and people can come check you out. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been my pleasure. My pleasure too. Thanks, Diane. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Beth Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting.